This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. You hold my hand too tight. Baby, I ain't holding your hand. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we talk about film series one movie at a time. I'm your host, Gabe Green, and, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, James Hamrick. Hey man, what's up? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Um, so this week, we are discussing the second film in the Evil Dead series, Evil Dead 2. So I, I have a feeling this episode is going to be a bit longer than last week's, which I think was uh, the sh our shortest episode ever, probably for both franchise fatigue and underrated. Um, I think that this one has a bit more discussion material <laughs> than the first one. So before we begin our discussion on this film, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please go and write and review us on iTunes and then like us on Facebook. And so during our week-long break, I put out on Facebook and Twitter asking you guys about your favorite, uh, what your favorite film in the series was. And uh, from Twitter, at uh, Jarek said, uh, more a Bruce Campbell fan uh, than of the Evil Dead franchise, which which is perhaps why I only own Army of Darkness and consider Ash versus the Evil Dead the ultimate representation of the story. And that, that's actually a um, a sentiment I hear a lot. Army of Darkness feels like a, it's a very uh, natural continuation of the franchise, but it, it also has kind of its own fans who like that and not the previous two. Um, and then the SSG podcast, which is run by our friends Chris and Mitchell, said, Army of Darkness. Oh, and don't forget, shop smart, shop smart. Uh, then on Facebook, Michael Zane Johnson said, Evil Dead 2 is probably my fave. So uh, thanks, guys, for that input. And before we get into the main discussion, James, why don't you tell us a little bit about how this film came to the big screen? Sure. Yeah, so uh, the ideas for a sequel actually were being bounced around during the development and shooting of the original film. Um, some of the ideas that were being played with included Ash being held hostage in the cabin by escaped convicts who were searching for buried treasure. And honestly, I feel like I would have watched that as well. That's That sounds very entertaining in the cheesy way that, that these movies are. Um, as well, uh, an idea that Raimi really uh, wanted to shoot was Ash being sent back to the Middle Ages, uh, which was an idea that he would later use for the third film, Army of Darkness. However, after the original came out and it was a huge success, Raimi didn't really see the need for a sequel, at least not immediately, and just kind of assumed the, the success of his new film, Crime Wave, which we, he was producing with the Coen brothers as well. Uh, it was a crime comedy. Um, however, it came out and was pretty disappointing, both financially and critically. Um, fortunately for them, uh, the primary publicist for their original film just started promoting Evil Dead 2 before Raimi even decided to do it. <laughs> And I so, love the 80s. oh yeah, and so that was kind of already out there. So they just jumped on board and started making it as if you know it was always the plan. So Raimi returned to direct and uh, produce it along with uh, Bruce Campbell starring. And in this this time, actually, Stephen King assisted in funding it. One of the producing agents that Stephen King was using in his attempt to try to get a lot of his adaptations or a lot of his works adapted for the screen. There's a Dino De Laurentiis. Yes. Approached Raimi to direct um, the adaptation of Stephen King's book, Thinner. Uh, Raimi declined, though, wanting to do his own stuff. Um, that came to King's attention that he was doing a direct sequel, though. And King, being one of the 
most outspoken um, positive reviews of the original uh, decided to actually assist funding the film. Uh, so, so Raimi had already written a draft of the script while making Crime Wave, and once they got the green light for Evil Dead 2, he brought on his old school friend Scott Spiegel to help rewrite the script. Uh, it was Spiegel's idea to make it much more of a comedy than a straight horror film like the first one was, or uh, intended to be a straight horror film. At the time they were writing the script, they were sharing a house with the Coens, Francis McDormand, Kathy Bates, and Holly Hunter. And uh, Holly Hunter was supposedly one of the inspirations for the character of Bobby Joe. I could see that. It would be fun fun if she had been in this film. They also said the Three, the three Stooges was a major inspiration for the, the comedy routines. And you could definitely feel that uh, in a lot of Bruce Campbell's performance. <laughs> the question of whether this is a sequel or a remake has kind of long been debated in, in, the, fa- in the fandom. And I don't think there's an actual answer. The filmmakers themselves don't seem to really have much of a, have a, uh, an idea nailed down either way. The original plan was just to uh, make cr- create a short recap using clips from the original film and just tack it onto the the you know the first five or ten minutes. Uh, but they actually didn't have the rights to that uh, to the original film, so they pretty much reshot it, just paring it down to Ash and his girlfriend, and then following a bunch some of the same beats and then ending on the exact same shot that the first one ends. so it's it's kind of a weird amalgamation of remake sequel because I, I mean because it really could be a sequel like after the seven minute mark it just picks up directly where the previous film left off so and i think there's actually a cut out there of the two stitched together where you know right as as it we jump in front of ash's face they just that's where they start dead by dawn and I wouldn't mind watching that. Just a, a big three hour cut. Yeah, but it's also it's ob- like it's obviously a very different house. And this is the house that they can cont- use in Ash versus the Evil Dead TV series. And, you know, it's a double barrel shotgun instead of the single barrel. Like it is there's enough differences where it's it, it could definitely p- pass as a remake. So as far as the casting, um, the only actor to return physically was uh, Bruce Campbell as Ash Williams. New characters included Annie Noby, uh, which was Professor Noby's daughter, played by Sarah Barry. Jake, played by Dan Hicks. He is the uh, <laughs> last name. Very. Uh, <laughs> is he the Hick? Exactly. Okay. Yes. I don't know. I, I, I don't know any names. I'm just gonna be calling them by their uh, their function. <laughs> Same with the yeah. Result. So he is the Hick. And Cassie Will- uh, Wesley plays Bobby Joe, who is uh, based pretty much on Holly Hunter, who they were living with. Um, and you can see that. Uh, and then whenever Henrietta becomes possessed, she's actually portrayed by Ted Raimi. That's the, the, the mother in the basement. Yes, the mother, uh, the professor's wife. Uh, Linda is played by Dennis or Denise Bixler this time around. Richard Domer, I believe is how you pronounce that, plays Professor Ed Getley, which is uh, Professor Noby's associate and Annie's boyfriend who meets... Uh, a very ugly end. John Peaks returns to voice Professor Noby, the archaeologist who found the Book of the Dead. And then whenever Henrietta Noby is not a horrific masculine demon, uh, she's played <laughs> by Lou Hancock. Uh, and then lastly, William Preston Robertson voices, he's, he's credited as the Evil Dead. Um, so he voices all of the scary voices that you hear out in the woods. Is that including the hand? I have a feeling like something in me, what, something tells me that it was Bruce Campbell, but I don't know. See, it's, I was thinking Sam Raimi. Oh, maybe. 
Uh, who, but who, whoever voiced the hand is it was amazing. <laughs> the hand bit is like the greatest thing in the movie. I love it. So the film was shot in Wadesboro, North Carolina. Uh, the cel- the sets were built in a local high school, and the big White House where um, Spielberg had actually just finished filming The Color Purple was used as the production office. Um, legendary makeup artists Greg Nicotero and Howard Berger worked on the makeup and effects in this film. Uh, Greg Nicotero is a best known now for uh, doing all the, the zombie makeup and as well as directing a bunch of episodes of the of the walking dead but by all accounts this was a far less miserable and stressful shoot uh, than the production of the first film uh, and finally joseph laduca scored the movie um and so it was released on march 13th of 1987 six years after the first film they had to give uh, bruce campbell time to finish maturing that chin <laughs> so do you remember your first time viewing this film and uh how and what have you thought of it over the years, James? Um, so I actually, I think I mentioned it on the last podcast. I didn't watch this um, until earlier this year. Uh, just kind of, I went through a period, I think it was before we went on Gut Reactions podcast, just binging a lot of 80s horror. Um, and so I watched the first one and this one back to back. I still slightly prefer the original, um, but... I really enjoy both films, and I think despite you know the uh, the continuity errors, like with things like the shotguns and um, and the house being different, like they they work very well together in my opinion. And I would absolutely be up for watching a three hour cut of the two stitched together. And I just view it as a direct sequel, but uh, I like it a lot, and I do like that they kind of they saw the moments that intentional or not felt like just laugh out loud moments and they just really leaned into that he bruce campbell is not the greatest actor but he can be so entertaining when he's just letting loose and so it seems like they saw all of the strengths of the original and then they kind of saw well this doesn't work if we try this but if we if we try this we can actually play it to our strengths and i think a a lot of those decisions help this be a more even film than the first yeah he really feels like he's becoming Ash in this movie, whereas the first film, he really doesn't have any of that kind of stupid swagger and whatnot. So I, I, I don't remember when I first watched this. I think it was very shortly after seeing the first film, and I liked it all right. I, I think I liked it only a little bit better than the first one, which I was kind of like I don't remember being all that over the moon about this. I think I was a little disappointed having you know having heard a lot of people say oh it's so much better than the first one. It just it didn't do much for me. However, this last viewing, I actually watched it. I watched it two weeks ago, then we got delayed, and so I watched it again this morning just to kind of refresh it. And it's it's really really fun. Uh, I think I like it quite a bit more than the first one actually, which we'll get into. You mentioned Bruce Campbell not being the best actor. I think that like, kind of goes to this entire cast. Like no one in this cast is going to win any awards. However, it's still a huge step up from the cast of the first one. Like they're they're still playing like very broad characters everyone's acting is way over the top but they f- they still feel a lot more engaging and like like they're actual characters than they did in the first one yeah i think with the first one you know i don't think anybody was really trying to play up a specific like character trait or anything and in this one it seems like you know you pick the cliche and you just really exaggerate that and whether you're a good actor or not if you have any ounce of charisma, it, it just ends up being much more engaging and, and entertaining. Yeah. So it's crazy. They, they literally make that complete remake of the first film in seven minutes. And was, it's odd. It's not, it's not short enough to be like a, like a fast recap prologue. 
it's also it's also obviously very short being only seven minutes but it still feels like it's it has a sense of pace and it, it has its slow moments and fast moments it actually feels like it doesn't feel like you're watching a recap it feels like you're actually watching a story which is really interesting that you're able, able to do that in that little small amount of time yeah and i think my intro though is is why for myself, you know, like you said, it, there's a lot of ambiguity in the actual relationship between the two films, and it is kind of just up to the viewer, I guess, to decide how they want to how they want to watch them. I think why I still just choose to watch the first one, and that you know, outside of recording purposes, I usually just end up fast forwarding to the to the moment where they meet up. Wait, which 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 moment? The the moment where where Evil Dead 2 meets the ending of the original oh. Evil Dead. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, just just for my own purpose, because... I, I think you're missing something, just to butt, butt in real quick, because like, the, the musical cue that comes back while she's, like, like well, he's kind of weeping over the loss of his girlfriend, like, there's actually some like kind of touching moments, the way they... I thought it was actually quite clever, the way they made those setups and payoffs in that first seven minutes that kind of come back through the course of the film. But I thought that music was also the music that just plays in the original as well. Like when he gives her the present, that kind of huh. classical. Like the thing he's playing on the, the piano? Like the, yeah, the piano. I thought that was playing. Maybe, like, maybe. I, I, I don't remember. But well, regardless, of, like, I, like I said, I watched the, the full thing for, for the purpose of review. Okay. But whenever I'm just watching it on for my own, you know, just pleasure, I guess, I like to view them as one story. And I, I think part of that comes from uh while yes it, it is able to tell an actual like and like start to finish story i think in, in the time of seven minutes i feel like the movie after that very much feels like it's it's counting on you having seen the first like it's it carries a weight of just a long night that this guy has been put through the ropes <laughs> and everything like and ha- just watching this as a remake of the original, I really don't get that at all. A long night and the world's shortest uh, day. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but if, you know, if like when we get to the moment, like the just ridiculous moments as the movie goes on, like with him just completely losing his mind, that that makes a lot more sense if he had tried putting his hand through a mirror and it was like water just, you know, hours ago. Like if, if, if all of the crazy events that we saw play out in full happen and then we watch this i feel like it's this movie just feels a lot more impactful i guess that way yeah i can see that although they they do give you the feeling in that prologue of having spent a long night you know he he does have to kill his girlfriend then bury her then he gets possessed or he tries to escape and he gets possessed and then yeah like (laughs) it's it's definitely an ordeal either way yeah. Yeah, and just I think right at the center of why this film is so much fun is Bruce Campbell, where he's really has embraced this role. <laughs> he's, like there's absolutely no dignity in this performance. Like the moment after um after he runs back into the house, uh, and he's just like sitting in the chair, just like letting out these incredibly pathetic <laughs> wails and like throwing his head around. It's just, there's, there's so there's, n- there's absolutely no pretense or, or anything. He's just, he's just absolutely going for it. And, and it's just, it's fun to watch him suffer because he makes it so like the three stooges where they make pain. So just look funny. And there's so many great things, just the physical performance, just especially when his hand is possessed, which I think it's just one of the great comedy routines <laughs> because he's able to make it feel like his hand 
is being controlled by something <laughs> other than himself as he's you know punching himself and forcing himself to flip and breaking glasses over his head and it reminds me did you you saw upgrade right yes yeah that's yeah, exactly that's, that's, what, that's, I was that's, that's what i was thinking when watching upgrade when he's breaking glasses over the guy's head it's like he I, i'm i would bet money that he Watch Bruce Campbell's performance. It's funny. That's exactly where my mind went this most recent time as well. And this one also dips kind of into a surrealism that I didn't feel in the first one. I think they're actually very well done. Like when he's fighting her at the window, then he wakes up in the chair and then he looks in the mirror and him he, he comes out of the mirror and starts choking him and the camera backs up and it's him choking himself. Like that's a really, really well made little moment. And I think he just... He just Adding different, rather than having the exact same type of torment, adding all these different layers, including, including like this surrealism, I thought just it helped stretch out that time where he was by himself and made it always like there's always something new coming at this poor guy. Yeah, the first one feels much more physical, at least throughout, where it's everything that's happening really is happening. I think it does a cool job of like really messing with his head at the end, you know, with, with the sound going over the, the boards and the, and the rafters and everything on the clock. But, but like you said, this one, it's very, very surreal and just almost, it feels like up until people arrive, it is all in his head. Um, seeing her at the window, everything there, him choking himself, this is a guy completely losing it. Um, and other than like his, his, his battle with his hand, which is just, an incredible sequence. You dirty bastards! Give me back my hand. That's what. That was one of my favorite lines of like any movie. I'm just to me like I'm picturing like Charles Heston uh, <laughs> at the end of like or Charlton Heston at the end of Planet of the Apes. You know, just like but here, just a complete parody of that kind of despair. But what I love is you. Know, other than that, a lot of this beginning is just you know, demonic forces messing with his head. And a sequence that I love is whenever the entire house and all the objects just start laughing at him. You got the deer and the lamp and everything. Oh and gosh, the hand puppet buck's head is the most terrifying thing ever. It's so freaky looking. And so you have the, and he like, he's like bobbing up and down with the <laughs> lamp and he's losing his mind. And then as soon as, you know, there's a knock, the house just gets completely quiet and he just like aims a shotgun at the door. Like, like this really is all just, he's having this battle in his mind, um, for the entirety of this film up until that point. Uh, and so I do like that. I do agree with you. Like it, it feels a lot less restricted to, to the physical in this instance. Yeah. Um, and another thing I liked is, uh, I felt that this, the dead eye, they they did this a bit in the first one, but in this one, the dead eye seemed to try to torment him emotionally a lot more pointedly with how the way they use his you know his girlfriend rising from the grave and and then when he you know with oh when she bite the head bites his head he's just <laughs> flailing around the house. Oh, uh, I love it. And he sticks her head in the vice and she's then she turns back into herself and is pleading with him as a head. But then later on. After he uh, after he becomes possessed for a second time, like towards the end, and he's going to kill the professor's daughter, and he sees the necklace, and then the music theme comes up, and like he's actually able to act quite well underneath that like that mountain of makeup on his face. It felt like I was watching like an old '30s or '40s monster movie with that big overacting, but they're still able to get across everything without words under all that makeup. It felt a lot like that. He's actually it's actually kind of. 
sad just the way he wails while he's holding her necklace. Like they're able to create and previously as well, I forget the scene is where where I think it's toward towards the beginning where he he's kind of alone in the house and we hear the music playing and he just breaks down crying. Like amidst all this just ridiculous over the top funny violence and torment, they're able to create, I think, some real pathos for the character and which I, I didn't really feel as much in the first one. Like I just feel like this is like, it's it's pretty much a remake of the first film, but it it I think it does it by adding a lot of layers. Like just well, the, the whole twist of having the professor's daughter and the Hick and Bobby Joe show up is I think a really interesting thing. Kind of they come in halfway through to to give the film uh, you know a bunch a lot more steam to carry on for the rest of his runtime. But also it's just a lot of different little things like the surrealism, like the more pathos, like these new characters kind of just gives this film a lot more to work with over its runtime. Where as I felt the first film just kind of started to wear well, you know, wear out its welcome, kind of doing a lot of the same beats over and over again. So I think that um we talked about, you know, a a lack of, of heart, um and maybe not soul, but just empathy for the characters in the original. I think I don't think I, I feel that anymore for ash this time i think i felt that a little bit more actually in the first one for ash i think part of it is just because this one they just spend so much time beating him up and act like asking you to laugh about it um and and just his like you said this is whenever he becomes like the ash that we know the guy's you know up there insane groovy and uh much more of a caricature when in the first one he feels just like this this college age kid who stumbled into the wrong area and is having to actually kill his friends and stuff. But I do think with the inclusion of, um, of the, the professor's daughter and, and Bobby Joe and Jake, and they're not all, I mean, they're cliches, but they're cliches of different kinds of people as opposed to just like, it's the standard college kid crew. Um, and I do think they're with her and her relationship with their parents, you know, it's not anything that's going to truly tug at my heartstrings but it does add something and you know speaking of of the demons um trying to prey on you emotionally i think the best instance of either film is whenever the mother sings to the daughter um from the basement and she you know and then she starts recounting the details of her birth and everything and then so she starts singing the song and then she she explains to her that it's her and then you've actually you've got the music of the song playing in the background for the rest of the scene. Uh, I just thought it was like surprisingly effective. And that comes back at the end. She uses it to distract her her monster mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Ashton Killer. Yeah, which reminded me a bit of of the original Alien, just singing a singing a song during during the ending confrontation. But uh, but anyways, I just I thought it was like a surprisingly effective moment in a movie that's very much just like this slapstick splatter fest and i actually just talking about these new characters that we have you know we have i, I don't know any of their names you seem to know but you have the professor's daughter her boyfriend the hick and then bobby joe which is, is the one name i do remember because it screamed a lot <laughs> uh, I, I i just i think these characters are fun except for the, the boyfriend's just kind of there but the other three characters are kind of fun and like what is with the silent cat fight between the daughter and bobby joe the second they meet like they just they it it looks like they instantly hate each other. They don't. Not, neither one says it, but they, they both feel like they just want to claw the other's liver out or something. It's it's just kind of hilarious how kind of over the top their hatred of each other is the moment they see each other. 
it's it's never explained it's never there's never even anything where you can try to extrapolate what it could possibly be but i feel like that kind of dynamic is the only logical conclusion whenever she's introduced you spitting out dip it's just <laughs> she's gonna hate whoever's there uh you gotta introduce her like this yeah there, there, there's a little bit of psychopath in the daughter i don't know so there's something wrong with the, the way she grins like you know you know, a hundred bucks and you carry my bags. And she's like, does this evil grin. There's something wrong with her. I feel like there's something wrong with everybody in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And just the, the dynamic between the hit guy and Bobby Joe. It's just like, it's so over the top, but it's funny. And he's actually the only person in like both the first two films that seems to you know, express all that much worry for his uh, his loved one. Like, after after the daughter's boyfriend dies, she's just like, whatever. But when she disappears, she's like, he, he actually goes crazy with worry. It's like, wow, he's actually a human being. Might be the only one. Yeah, I think it's, it's the only time, and, and it, I noticed this, this most recent viewing, it's the only time I ever felt even a tad bit sad when somebody bites the dust in these movies. Uh, before I'm just like, oh wow, that's an awesome effect. You know, I'm just kind of appreciating what the movie's doing. Uh, but as he falls into the yeah, basement, <laughs> just got blood shooting out everywhere. Like I'm admiring the movie and how ridiculous it is. While I'll be like, oh man, I kind of like Jake. Oh, that moment the, the, before that, after they're they're attacked in the woods and she runs back inside and he comes in, she accidentally stabs him. That's that's such like a horrible tragic moment because you know you're being whittled down one by one, and you actually actually kill one of your few friends left. That was like a real moment of tragedy. <laughs> Obviously, then then interrupted by her slamming the door on his body. <laughs> There's I, I watched this this most recent viewing. I watched it with my sister who actually hadn't seen the first one, so this is the only one she had seen at this point. And the whole time, I'm just. Said, like this is so stupid but it's so amazing she pulls him in she's still got like the entirety of his giant boots sticking out the door she's still trying <laughs> to slam it immediately afterwards because we're all a big fan of of the spider-man trilogy so i was like now you have context for this scene and so we just watched the dr octopus scene on youtube <laughs> i'm like that's why the chainsaw is highlighted uh and i didn't even realize this but there's a because i always knew like just the way he shot that scene and the chainsaw but there's a there's a shot where we see the the we're seeing the film from the perspective of like the eyes in the middle of one of his robotic arms and it glides across the floor and it com- and then it, there's like there's a table in front of it and it like gently goes above the table and back down it's a complete recreation of like the way the ghosts are uh, from the outside uh. so it's pretty cool and so one of the things that i did like a lot about this as well uh, is how you know we talked about the surrealism of it and so we talked about a, a lot of the new additions, because my favorite thing about the first one is just all the different ways they used to like hurt our protagonists and all these effects and stuff. And they they continue that creativity here to just really cool levels. Like on paper, the house laughing at him is is absolutely ridiculous, but in the movie it works so well. And and moments where he's looking out the window and we've got an entire stop like claymation ballet recital. Um <laughs> The movie, it seems, it, it felt like Raimi, the, the success of the first one confirmed that there's an audience for this kind of ridiculous movie. And so 
he doesn't hold back at all here. So much so that, you know, the finale, we've got this giant demonic head forcing its way through the door with this huge eye. And and your leader at this, or your protagonist at this point, just has a chainsaw for a hand and he's sawing at the eye. It's, there, there's no, apolo- they end up making no apology for how ridiculous they allow this to go. Um, and it just makes for a consistently engaging and, and fun movie, if not just for for watching all of the different effects, you know, and they had, they had a bigger budget this time around too. So you, you can afford these huge, you know, puppets and, and everything. It's, it's just a visually a really cool movie. Yeah. I, I think you can definitely see that a significant step up in Raimi as a filmmaker. Like the, the, the that kind of raw talent was obviously there in the first film, but it was also very, it was a very rough, uh, you know, unrefined movie. Like there's a lot of, you know, poor editing, just sloppy shots. Ba- you know, the sound design was kind of all over the place. So the, the sound editing, like this, actually feels like a real, like a movie that was, you know, had a lot more, um, you know, time, money, and talent going into it. And just, I think the overall the filmmaking just feels stronger. Like the the editing, like just like in those surreal scenes where where it does cut back and forth between the surrealism and the and the reality. It just. And the the way I I think the way he's able to build you know uh, you know pathos for the characters just all of that just it feels a lot a lot smoother and a lot more like he he really knows what he's doing like, you know he's still able he's still completely willing to go completely insane and do all the crazy stuff he did in the first one but there's a lot more I think a lot more skill involved behind it um and the, I think you see that in scenes like with with the hand um. The way he cha- he changes perspective, like from Ash's perspective to the hand's perspective, like the way it's looking around, it sees the knife and perks <laughs> up, and then it's going across the floor. Then he stabs it. Like who's laughing now? It's just the way those scenes are built. There's a lot of you know quality craftsmanship going into that. Um, oh gosh, the just speaking of the hand, even after he cuts it off, it's still the best. And where it's just skittering on the floor, that it gets caught in the mouse trap, and Ash is laughing. She was like, ha! Like this crazy, ridiculous, over the top laugh, and then it <laughs> flips him the bird, and just, it's just so ridiculous and hilarious. And that, that, that little voice, little chittering <laughs> voice that I love, as it's so pulling good. him across, it's like, uh, uh, as it's pulling him across <laughs> the floor, just cracks me up every single time I watch it. And, and I, I think the other scenes where the filmmaking really comes in, probably my favorite in the movie, is that after they come in and, and, you know, very understandably assume that Ash is a chainsaw murderer and throw him into the uh, the cellar. And they start listening to the recording and he slowly talks about, you know, he possessed my wife and this and this and then, and I buried her in the cellar. And it's just slowly building Ash's dread. He kind of just looks over. It's like a really well-built scene. Yeah, there's a lot of tension there. I I think part of the reason that that I prefer the first is is because they lean into horror more but I do think they do just horror and like tension in this scene really really effectively where we're cutting between him and and them up top and and zombified demon henrietta is pretty terrifying yeah. you know I'm going to eat you like when as she's as claiming as to eat the soul and like, this is creepy man they're almost as disgusting as uh the mother in uh uh, brain dead from Peter Jackson. Ooh, I don't... not quite. I don't think I'm, uh, there's, I don't think there's a single disgusting sight in, in cinema worse than that. But this this uh, this this is definitely pretty bad. 
Yeah, and another great horror scene is the, you know, the Dead by Dawn, where it's like, Dead by Dawn, Dead by Dawn, Dead by Dawn, where she's like, like very similarly to, uh, I forget who, I forget the name, but the I think it's the sister, when she's in the uh, in the first one, the sister, where she's under the cellar, kind of banging on the door, they kind of Henrietta in the same place, and the whole house is just standing Dead by Dawn. It's just really, really nerve-wracking. Yeah, that to me, that was a scene that felt most reminiscent of the original, where whether it's funny or it's scary or whatever's going on, still this sense of just like everything around you, the house, the woods, everything is just surrounding you with nothing but the intent to like kill you or possess you by, by the end of the night. And uh, it does, even when the movie gets as ridiculous as it is with that kind of surrounding it, there's still, you know, that level of tension and atmosphere that, that you kind of feel over the whole film. And I think my favorite aspect of this movie is, is as it goes, there actually there comes a point where we discover that there is a possibility of defeating these things, and then he teams up with the professor's daughter. I think they actually have pretty decent chemistry together. <laughs> so gosh, oh, the scene where um after he's possessed the second time, and then you know then he you know he throws her around, then he kind of saves himself or his girlfriend his girlfriend saves him, <laughs> but she's still trying to kill him. And then he, like, you know, he, he's like, he, he, you know, he pushes her away. He's like, I'm all right. And then he leans back against the wall. And the axe comes inside his head. And then he grabs, like, are you listening to me? Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm all right. And he's just like tossing her around the room. It's just absolutely ridiculous. But um, and then but once they team up together, they, I think they, have, they have a decent, it, it feels like there's actually some hope. And they're, they're, like the film, the film is building towards something like. Instead of just characters trapped alone, being tortured with no hope, it feels like the film is actually you know building towards a climax, building to you know giving our characters something to fight for and something you know something to kind of take the film and, and you know push it towards a resolution. And that's something I thought the first film lacked, but uh, that I really enjoy in this one is that we, it actually feels like we have you know our characters have something to fight for. There's a conf- there's an actual conflict. It's not all just one way torture. Um, and by the, as it builds towards the end, and you know, the, and when she, I actually I forgot that the daughter. Do- I, I didn't remember what happened to the daughter. It was actually I was actually kind of hoping she would live, because I thought her and Ash were actually pretty good together. And there was just, and but then when she's finally reading the words and she got stabbed, it's actually quite sad. But I, I do like that she doesn't just die. That she's able to you know, kind of go out as a hero, reading the last of the um, of the words to banish evil. Like it felt like. This, this film feels like it cares a bit more about the characters, you know, allowing her, you know, that moment before she dies to save the world um, rather than just, you know, tree raping her and killing her. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I definitely agree that you feel a sense of of love for these characters uh, or at least care and concern in a way that you didn't in the original, even though they're willing to grab the most likable guy and put him through some sort of demonic shredder in the basement. But I feel, I feel it, it feels really sad when that happens. Like they've gone through so much and then, Oh no, when she grabs his head, you're like, stop it. They've had enough. Yeah. And so, and any, I mean, being given even semblance of personalities this time around, it's, it, it makes the movie more captivating. Um, and more interesting in that aspect. Uh, and then just as far as, you know, the finding the, the other pages that were torn that we now have that actually 
like you said, give give the characters hope, and we actually have a mission. I, I enjoyed the first one, the, the fact that the premise was literally just you know survive the night. Um, but the, you know this one feels more more properly structured, where we do have kind of this this third act thing that we're at that we're actively building towards. Um, but one of my favorite things about it is just how it kind of builds to the mythology. The first one was just you know as as bare bones as as the movie needs you know there's a book if read aloud demons come out um and that's mostly it uh but here you know even you know with the very beginning the description of of the creation of the book and the inscriptions in blood and and all of this and and finding the lost pages did you hear the part where it says it disappeared 1300 years ago yeah, which is exactly where he goes in the end. Exactly. Yeah, and so he and then he goes back there, and then you're they're given a name for the very first time, where you know they call him like the Slayer of the Deadites, and that's the first time we've actually got a name for these particular demons. And so, and, and then just that cliffhanger ending, you know, it's setting something up. And so I do like how how the movie is no longer just relying on like, oh, well, there's a Book of the Dead thing that we read about from. Um, HP Lovecraft and we're just kind of kind of use some of that this is them really kind of building their own myth for the movies um, and, I, and I enjoy that a lot it, it, it has a real like back to the future 2 ending even though this came out first like where the first film is kind of standalone but this, the, the second film really purposefully sets up the sequel <laughs> like just that ending the way he wakes up in Monty Python and the Holy Grail land and you know the camera zooms out. It's like it. It really. It really. You really want to see that. Yeah. It, it's much more purposely. You know, setting up the franchise. Um. I think it works pretty well. <laughs> I mean, what a bold ending. Yeah. Your your two films in and to what is even with the the increased budget, still fairly low budget films. You know, without huge attention outside of that specific genre and and fan base, and just going out and like. Ending your film with a guy with a shotgun, a chainsaw for a hand, shooting a flying demon in the Middle Ages, like as your last sequence, it's it's pretty incredible. Yeah, if that happened today, all the critics would roll their eyes. I'm like, gosh, sequels, and this, you know, this has been going forever. Yeah, and I'm I'm here for it. Yeah, it, it was cool to you know, opening the film or like earlier on the film, we see the the image of Ash and with a chainsaw hand in the past. And speaking of which. There's a guy with a chainsaw hand and a shotgun in this movie. Isn't that cool? I'm gonna say if if there was ever a moment where it's it's confirmed like that we are we're really go like we're hemming this up. Like we we know how cheesy we got before and we're just embracing that. It's this little montage of them building his little chainsaw hand harness. Yeah, tooling up montages are the best, and that's a great one. Especially when they end with groovy yeah i know what the first words if i ever get a prosthetic arm are going to be oh yeah and uh, i think i think we've kind of covered this film uh pretty well one one note i did want to add going back to that talking about uh, sam raimi's direction uh, one thing i really liked is how most of the film is shot with these really wide lenses that even though like even if they're like really close up on bruce campbell they still you still see all the background and and it just it makes him feel really small in the frame, and, and and it makes the whole the set feel like really huge and intimidating around him. And like uh, that scene where he where they're all laughing, you know, he's ducking up and down, like 
he feels like this is this tiny piece being toyed with inside of the frame. Even if it's like, even if the camera's right in his face, just the way they he used super wide lenses, it really makes him feel tiny. Um, yeah. So I think we've pretty much covered this. Is, actually, this episode is going to be pretty short as well. But uh, I think we, you know, we've, we've talked about most of what this film has to offer. Uh, let's uh, close out. Um, uh, did you get a chance to listen to the soundtrack at all? Um, I did not this week for this one. Yeah, well, you didn't miss a lot. Uh, this one, it was uh, scored by uh, Joseph uh, Laduca. Uh, overall, it's it's kind, it's pretty traditional, just kind of cre- creepy strings and horns. It gets kind of repetitive. There was one track that stood out to me. Uh, it was the first one, Behemoth. Uh, but it, it's, it stood out because it feels like it's from a different movie. It feels like it's uh, it belongs in like Conan the Barbarian or some kind of swords and sorcery epic. It's this really it, it just it's like this kind of weird like epic myth- mythological uh, piece of music. It's, it's strange, but it's, it's really the only one that stood out to me in the soundtrack. Uh, and finally, um, what is your star rating for this film, and how would you uh, compare it to the first one? Uh, so I got I got three and a half stars with this one. I, I really enjoy it a lot. Um, I I still slightly prefer the original. Um, like I said, I, I like the horror aspects of it. I, I like just the ridiculous amounts of gross gore. Um, and there there are just certain things he did in the first one that I I really enjoyed a lot with the camera, like everything in the in the basement with the like covering the the projector in blood and and lighting the the bulb with red, which just cast the whole room. Although they did that again in this one, um, but like I said, I, I really my preferred viewing of this is pretty much just mashing the two movies together and watching it as one. Hmm. But yeah, overall, still very positive on it. Okay, so I gave it a four out of five as compared to the three I gave it for the first one. You know, it, it's a lot. It's like all, most of the good stuff in this movie is kind of very similar to the good stuff in the first one. But for me, you know, not being as attached to horror, I'm going to pick the one that just feels more like a movie, just with with, with the better acting, you know, the, the stronger craftsmanship. It, it just feels more like a complete film. And there's a lot less that I have to overlook in this one. And I think it, it really upped my favorite part, which is, you know, Bruce Campbell and the humor um, by just letting Bruce Campbell be, be himself all across the screen. Yeah, so and I would definitely rank this one. Uh, above the first one um so going to its re- uh, reception uh, it grossed roughly six million domestically on its uh, 3.5 million budget i it's weird i couldn't find any numbers for what it grossed internationally but it, it did a lot because they they really um increased the budget for the third film so i, I don't know it's i don't know why the numbers aren't available but i couldn't find them anywhere so they, it definitely grossed more than six million as far as the, the critical reception, it got very positive reviews with a, a lot of you know a lot of praise going to uh, Sam Raimi's direction, Bruce Campbell's performance. Um, a lot of people say it's even better than the first one. You know, there's a that's kind of a uh, conflict within the fandom. Like it's it's still you know it's still pretty popular even to this day to say you know this is a better sequel than the first one. There's still there's, as, as like with James, some people still hold the first one above, but it's it's it is. It's it's always great when you find a sequel that can you know in in the fandom there's still there's this conversation over which is the best. It's a, a Godfather situation. Yeah, Empire Strikes Back kind of thing. Yeah, Toy Story, uh, Captain America: Winter Soldier. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 um, Winter Soldiers. Yes. So as far as the film's overall legacy, it's obvious it is this movie, not the first one. That that was kind of the building blocks that they built the franchise out of. Like Army of Darkness is built off of Evil Dead Two. 
uh, Ash versus the Evil Dead goes back to Evil Dead 2, obviously with the chainsaw hand, you know, the double barrel shotgun. And even when they go back to the cabin in the woods, it's this exact same cabin, not the cabin from the first film. Like, this is the movie that the franchise that, that was spawned is going is pointing back towards, which is just so interesting. And as far as I can tell, you know, being somewhat on the outskirts of the whole horror community, this it seems to be just very well loved kind of inside that the the, the horror fandom. I will What's your you're you're much more of a horror guy. What's your perspective on that? I mean, I think you'd be hard pressed going into any sort of horror community, whether it's an online forum or uh, events or or wherever. You're not going to find a, a self-professed horror fan who dislikes this film. Um, it's, I mean, I think it has just enough hints of like straight horror. It's got inc- some of the best examples of horror comedy. Uh, it starts really building up cool lore. There's there's something in this movie for every every fan of of just this genre and so yes it's it's a beloved film that usually ranks pretty high on people's lists. You know what's interesting? Seems like the horror community, the, the people who love horror films, are very open to the to comedy in their movies. Like there's a whole like subsection of horror of, of you know, horror comedies, and they, like they seem to embrace those just as much as like the straight terrifying horror films. And it's weird, like you think like action fans like. It feels like the action people kind of resent comedy in their movies, even though a lot of, a lot of movies are, are action comedies. Like, there's kind of this is you know, like these days a pushback against having comedy in your movie that just didn't exist. That doesn't exist at all in the horror community. Yeah, that's I, I really enjoy discussions within this this community and and just the way we treat all the different subgenres. There's so many different different kinds. It's just straight horror, typical slashers movies like the evil dead within this horror comedy uh huge amounts of parodies it's very very versatile um yeah and, and some of some of the best films in the genre are a part of this particular subgenre. yeah i i generally i'll go if i'm if i'm doing a horror i'll go for a horror comedy just because i don't like being scared <laughs> so yeah that was the evil dead 2 actually just evil dead 2 they lost the v um, so next week we will back, be back with the, uh, the best film in, of, of the franchise, in my opinion, uh, army of darkness or Bruce Campbell versus the army of darkness. Yeah, this, this is as far as I've been in the, the series. I haven't seen the, the remake or, um, <laughs> army of darkness. So I'm very excited to, to see what this series looks like outside of just the cabin. So again, I'd like to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes. And if you want to like us on Facebook, we're there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, we're there as Franchised Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, so you can follow me on Letterboxd. I'm there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Kind of hit a little bit of a slump, but... Hopefully going to be watching unhealthy amounts of movies during Thanksgiving break. And we are also admins over at Star Wars fans who actually like Star Wars. We're continuing trying to grow that site. That site's been a nice way to to maintain conversation on Star Wars now that we're over. I'm, I'm still feeling a, a bit of a, a discernible lack of Star Wars in my life. Having withdrawals. Yeah, I'm watching Resistance every week to kind of keep the flame alive. I, I need to do that. I miss the incredibly cheap season pass. Oh. So now I'm just having to buy them episode by episode. But but anyways, 
so definitely, if, if you love the, the entirety of the series, come join us over there. We are a Facebook group. All right. Um, so until next week, we will see you in the Army of Darkness. Groovy. Groovy.